Hey everybody, it's Joe Trippy, and welcome back to That Trippy Show. Today we have a great guest, a, a, a great friend of mine, um, James Fletcher. Uh, he's a friend and the director of The Accidental President, uh, a film I think everybody should watch to take the time. It's a documentary on the 2016 election uh, released recently. Uh, and, you know, kind of asked the question, how did we all miss this, the Trump thing? And look, I know people, uh, you know, they don't want to hear about Trump. They want him in the rearview mirror. I think the reason this film is so important um, and the reason I'm so happy Fletch is with us today is, uh, you know, I still think 2022 democracy is still uh, in a very dangerous, rocky place here in the States. What we can learn from this film, how we, the things we missed, the things we need to be on the lookout for and why we need to be so vigilant um, in our democracy going forward. Uh, this, this film really kind of sheds a, a, a real light in, in a way that's not partisan, um, just really, if I was very impressed, James, how factually based and how sort of even handed it was and how scary that was to see people on both sides completely missing it and completely not seeing the danger we were all in and the danger we continue to be in. So, so, uh, great to have you with us, James. And, uh, uh, and I'll call you Fletch, which is what I'm used to. So we've been through, (laughs) Uh, a lot of battles, uh, a lot of campaigns, uh, mostly overseas, uh, together over the years. So it's great to have you, good friend. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, one of the things is I, I just realized that I think one of the last times you were in a campaign with me together was in the, the great place called Iraq uh, in the middle of the war. So just letting our listeners know that's, I mean, we we went back further than that, but Fletch and I have been in uh, a bunch of uh, situations together is what I would call them. Some, some of them very scary, but uh, I would get in a trench anytime with James Fletcher. He, he's, uh, he's just one of the best, but you know, let's get to your, 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 uh, unless you've got something you want to whack me with, I really want to talk about your film. Thank you. Uh, you know, I, I, I even saw myself in this film talking about how I, I thought Trump was, it was sort of a charade. He, he, he was, acting the part of wanting to run, but he didn't really want to even run for president, didn't want the presidency. Uh, and then sort of stunned to see all these other people, uh, Republicans, uh, that you were able to, I, I don't know how you got all of them to talk to you uh, the way they did. But uh, uh, talk, talk to me about what you, what you think were the, the, the key interviews or the, or the key points that you saw. Well, Thanks for observing the fact that we made it an objective piece. And, you know, obviously not having a vote here in America gives me a bit of distance. And I I hoped to be able to use that uh, to to give this this balance. Um, And therefore, I wanted to speak, you know, uh, folks like you, Joe, on the the more Democrat side of the line. Uh, and I, then it was very important to go and find the Republicans because it's very easy to just laugh at Trump and, you know, make all the jokes at his expense. It's an old trick. What we were looking to get to the bottom of was quite simply how a former game show host became the most powerful person on the planet. And if that doesn't require some level of inquiry, honestly, I don't know what does. Um, and so with that in mind, we started filming and I, I, I hit the phones. I asked loads of people for contacts and connections and so on. 
The good thing about the subject matter is everyone has an opinion. You rarely get someone saying, you know, I haven't really got a position on the Trump phenomenon. The, the fact is the guy won. We weren't trying to challenge the result of the election. What we were looking at was how on earth this guy came into the race, was laughed at from all sides, and then suddenly took down the Republican field one by one. As Molly Ball says, he went through the Republican field like a buzzsaw. And yep. then suddenly you made the point in the film that it wasn't until he was facing Hillary Clinton that he really wanted to win. So my the, the title, The Accidental President, the accident being, I contend, he never actually wanted to win or become president. It was a bit of a publicity exercise, which obviously got out of hand. And the more the speed, the, 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 the juggernaut got larger on the horizon, you realized uh, this was a real threat to the 2016 campaign but of course it was wasn't realized by both sides till far too late in the day and that's a, that's what kind of what i think makes it's the the film so salient today is that a lot of the factors that gave birth to trump's success i mean to this ex you know this and i understand what you mean by accident it, you don't mean it was an accident you mean it just sort of kept stumbling in growing and growing and then became reality that no one had seen, including him, uh, uh, probably. Yep. But that same accident may be happening now in a lot of ways. People sort of, you know, sigh of relief. Joe Biden's president. Trump's no longer uh, got his Twitter feed. And it's not possible that just like, uh, you know, Stuart Stevens, Republican uh, over at the Lincoln Project now, uh, said something to, to me on our on the podcast that the whole reason Trump won and and the way he got away with so many things is that we all lacked the imagination to see what was possible. I mean, no, that's not possible. Trump can't win. Well, we lacked the imagination to see that possibility. We lacked the imagination to see no president would go out on day one and uh, and, and attack. Uh, everybody else and only serve his base for the four, you know, that, that you, you'd expand. No, he won't do that. He did. Uh, now it's like, well, they can't get the majority back, not after Trump. Well, the same forces that, and that's what I think you capture in, in, in the film, uh, but because of the nonpartisan, because just sort of the factual documentary uh, basis is you could see he's just the, the, a, a symptom that that caught momentum of something that's going on out there, uh, and he was able to. He got it once he got on it. He he pounded away on it, and that's still out there. All the all the kind of hate mongering or whatever you want to call it uh, that that is you know dividing people and polarizing. It's still there, and in twenty twenty two, it can it can jump up and bite us all again. Well, you corrected me when we spoke recently, and I said, I, 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 while well, he's obviously allowed to run in 24, he probably won't do it. And you rightly stopped me and said, well, everyone was saying this in 2015 until yeah. he came down the escalator. Right. You know, every general election for the last, I don't know, four or five years, whenever he had a book coming out or something, he teased the possibility of running for president. And everyone laughed at it and said, no, he won't. And then it became something he did on a regular basis. And then, of course, he actually did it in 2015. And you're absolutely right to alert people to the possibility that he may well run in 2024. I, I don't put it past him. 
Um, I mean, now that you've corrected me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's not um, the, well, you've corrected me more than that along the way. <laughs> uh, but you know, along the way, he, uh, you know, he, he, uh, the Republicans do not have an obvious rep- replacement for Trump, and that person, in my opinion, ought to be kind of or an options for that person should be pretty obvious right now. And it strikes me that they're not, and it strikes me that though anyone thinking they are could not en- energize Trump's base in the way Trump can. Therefore, he presents, uh, as people say, a clear and present danger. And I think having thought about it more, I don't, I don't write him off at this point. So who, you know, you had all these first person interviews. I mean, Frank Luntz, Kelly, Ann Conway, uh, Steve Schmidt, I think. Uh, is there anyone that stood out or, or, or some moment that, uh, or some, some thinking that one of them, uh, you know, that just really rang true to you that just sort of like, you know, was an aha kind of understanding uh, of what happened? Well, I think Kellyanne was a great get and I got, I and that was a cold email to the White House, and there was a quite a bit of phone calling, and they they wanted me to prove that I wasn't just trying to set her up to to look ridiculous, but but not really. She's not afraid of a TV interview or, or ten. Um, I think what she enjoyed from the experience was that I wasn't saying, "Oh, but Kellyanne, you said this in 2014. What have you got to say for yourself?" What I asked her to tell me were were the stories, for example, when the Access Hollywood tape was was discovered, what happened in the Trump Tower meeting, and how did they respond um she was very interesting on the 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 whole nonsense around the debates where uh trump invited the clinton accusers to try and wrong foot hillary clinton um and embarrass them with the whole bill clinton backstory and she was she was great and she's a great interviewee i mean we 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 were uh given 15 minutes and she was still talking at five zero minutes and i kind of had to bring the interview to a close we literally run out of memory cards and so that was great. And that was on the day that Trump uh, put the country into lockdown. So we got that just in the nick of time. Molly Ball's a fantastic interviewee. She's someone who has really thought a lot of this stuff through. Uh, yeah, she's Frank smart. Luntz, really smart. Really smart. Really well informed. John Avalon, Frank Luntz, of course. Uh, again, very interesting. He has a similar background to you in the sense of, you know, he's run, he's been involved in, he's more a pollster, but he's been involved in campaigns. And I think the thing I go back to, Joe, often is that you, know, you and I have sat in a million focus groups. And it, at times like this, you realize the thing I always think about with a focus group is just whatever I think people are going to say or whatever their opinion is going to be, you can never be more wrong right. an hour later when you sat in a focus group and you've heard what people really, really do genuinely think. And when you get the Trump situation coming up, you know, you have all these, you know, smarty pants in Washington looking down their noses at people in the middle of America. Well, because they're so smart, what they generally haven't done is ever bothered to go and visit these people and talk to them and understand why they think the way they do. And this is the Trump phenomenon is so magnified by the difference between the coastal elites and the people in the middle of the country who spend very little time talking to each other. You've got, kind of got an excuse if you live in Iowa and you're get on, getting on with your life um, or, or the Rust Belt, the states which, which won it for Trump. But actually, if you're a Washington elite, you have no excuse for not buying a plane ticket and going to those places and really right. betting in and understanding but those people. This is something I've been saying within the Democratic Party for years, is that, and and particularly after the Trump thing, in fact, right after uh, we won. And you make this very point in the film. Yeah, is that we have to start uh, to do that. We have to be much more listeners uh, and understanding that 
we have to bring people along, not not lecture them or you know, or at least understand where they're coming from. Uh, you mentioned Frank Luntz. Uh, maybe I brought him up first, but you know he he and I did uh, the Italian uh, prime ministers race together with uh, Romano Prodi against Berlusconi. The, the time Prodi beat Berlusconi, but I, he he particularly with focus groups and language is just uh, uh, somebody I listen to quite a bit, regardless of. You know, on that we were on the same side, but you know, in the states we're often on different sides. But I always pay attention to to his findings or what he's hearing in those focus groups because you're right. That's the that's where you actually get a sense of. Uh, in fact, you know, in the Alabama um, race that we did with Doug Jones back in the special in 2017, throw the polling out the window. It was understanding in the focus groups. Uh, what people were really thinking, it was scary what they were really thinking. I mean, it, it scared the daylights out of me because we didn't clearly understand. It, until we did those groups, we didn't really understand where, where folks were. Doug Jones was able to capture that and speak to it and win in, in 2017. So, I, again, I think you're right. That's what I mean, or at least in terms of what I've been urging, you know, both parties need to start listening to the other side uh, more regardless of where, where they live and who they are. Um, I mean, and that's kind of the point about the film is even if you think Trump was really bad news, and I understand there are a lot of people like that, actually, you're the person that needs to be watching the film if you're not excited by a repeat performance, because a repeat performance is on the horizon. But the whole Sun Tzu business, if you don't know your enemy and you don't understand how he won, which honestly... I think most people don't know for the reasons we're talking about with focus groups, even yeah. especially in the political establishment, still don't really. No, and that's what I thought was so fascinating about like the moments with uh, uh, Kellyanne, Kellyanne Conway. Same thing. A lot of people, oh my God, he interviewed Kellyanne. I, I can't even watch this. What you, you, The way you disarmingly, I think, got people to actually talk about the tactics, those moments, about what they were thinking, about how the Trump campaign reacted, about what their messaging was like, uh, I think is, is gold in terms of just understanding how the, how the thing came, came to being. And now, now you look at uh, John Last uh, had a piece uh, a couple, uh, I think the day before yesterday on the... Uh, uh, you know, the new Republican autopsy. And it's, you know, and, and, and I'm quoting him now, it's one, build the political will to use raw power next time more than we did this time, more more raw power. And two, remove the Republican officials who are not willing to comply with the raw power that we were trying to use last time. If you have a, Trumpism, and that's your the, you know, basically everything day we see or the, is a party that is willing to use raw power um, the way Trump did, uh, but wants more of it. And two, wants is is removing or censuring, uh, kicking out uh, Republican officials that didn't that didn't comply. The the Republican Secretary of State in Georgia who who, who actually went with the constitution and not not the raw use of power uh, for the party, then you see the, what the danger is. And this film, I think, again, gets to the, gets to the root of it, uh, at least to understanding some of the root of this and the danger. And again, not, hey, big sigh of relief, forget about uh, watching the accidental president to learn about, because I don't want to hear about Trump anymore. It's no, it's a, it's that understanding of what I, I still think 2022 may be more dangerous 
than the 2024 presidential, because I think it's possible for the Republicans right now, while they're where they're doing the uh, the voter suppression and these other sort of raw power things can capture the House again in, in 2020. I mean, there's things that can happen that, get, that put us back on the downward spiral that I think you, again, watching this film sort of alerts you to that it's possible. And it's kind of, and you and I are fascinated by elections all over the world. And, and, and I think every election has its own story to tell, um, whatever the circumstances. And I think it's always worth remembering that no election has ever won the same way twice. But what fascinated me in 2016 was along came 17 Republicans, 16 of whom basically played exactly the same game. So Trump eliminated them because they were they were all so uh, unremarkable by their own tactics. Um, they were all copying each other and using a really outdated playbook. And so Trump comes along and does everything you and I would have told any candidate to never do. Right. And every time he does those things, not only does he not suffer, he prevails. His numbers go up. He's rude about John McCain. He's rude about Mexicans. He says and does these unforgivable things from the standard rule book of campaigning. And every time his fortunes improve, which is insane all on its own. Um, and it's lessons particularly for people like, like you and me, because we're, we're at, we've just had a massive education too. Well, one of the things he did too, though was... Uh and Twitter and other uh, social media uh, helped make that possible uh, in ways that weren't, ha haven't been in so much in the past, uh, was direct connection with his supporters. I mean, direct com connection and communication with them. The only campaign that I've seen do that uh, prior to this, to him, was the Dean campaign that I ran in, in, in 2004, where, you know, we had a blog, people could come on it. I mean, we could directly communicate with them. And then one day I woke up in the, you know, in the middle of uh, 2016 and realized, holy crap, Twitter is, is Trump's personal blog. I mean, he literally, you know, it was literally that same personal connection uh, along with a media uh, 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 amplifying environment, Breitbart, Fox, etc. you know, that could keep, uh, that, that would pump that up. And so it was even more more powerful, I think, in a lot of ways than what you know any previous campaign had done in terms of, including Obama's. I mean, in terms of, of just direct connection to its supporters. Well, because we 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 forget that smartphone didn't exist when Obama right. first appeared. Yeah, and so so yes, it did by by his reelection. So Obama was very successful on, on the internet, and he raised money right. along the the Howard Dean format that you that you pioneered. But this is really the first election, the smartphone election, where it wasn't just rich people that had a smartphone. And Trump yeah. took tremendous advantage of that. And what he was also able to do was subvert legacy media. So mm -hmm. if you or I were running an opposing, opposing candidate, Trump knew all he had to do was tweet something provocative. The interview would then pivot to Trump. And can you believe he's just said this? How outrageous. I mean, it was it was brilliant. It was a brilliant use of the technology. Uh, and we have to, we have, as you say, you say in the film, we have to compliment that use of the technology. I don't think it was cleverly premeditated, but I think he stumbled into it and then used it very successfully. Yeah, you know, and what's amazing is like you talk about all these different places we've worked in, but, you know, Africa uh, was way ahead on this because there's no, they're, they're, there's not a whole lot of television. Um, but Forest Village shares a cell phone. Um, yeah. And so like in Zimbabwe, where we worked, uh, 
in Nigeria, some of the more successful things that have happened in politics have been the use of, uh, you know, of mobile technology to move to move voters to to build that connection. And yeah, and the first time I saw it in the United States, really on that scale, again because it really was one of the first elections where we we had you know where enough Americans were were on mobile devices, et cetera, was was Trump's, yep. and he was able to merge all that all of it the the um, you know making Twitter his personal blog, uh, connecting uh, in person with you know in a personal connected way with people, and also. In his create his own silos where the rest of us are sort of like laughing or or you know not taking it seriously. What do you think in terms of now that you do have Biden in office, and you know, and Trump clearly without Twitter, you know, a, a different ability. Do you see Biden's lowering the temper? I mean, how do you how do you see now that okay now that we're where we're at? How does Biden um, is what Biden's doing working? And then, and two, how do you see Trump, assuming he wants to go in 2024, what's his power now within the, you know, out there with the Republic, you know, in terms of how it's going to impact the primaries in 2022, those kinds of things on the Republican side that we sort of see him getting involved in now? Well, it's interesting because um, I, I did, obviously Biden has reduced the temperature in, in many, many ways, not just on t- by not tweeting his every waking thought. But I think what's interesting, Frank Luntz again tweeted a few days ago that it's only 3% of Americans that actually use Twitter. And this is really important to remember. So, you know, Trump, uh, I was listening to a, a, a conversation Brad pa- um, Pascal was having, his, you know, digital guy. Yeah. And he was basically saying they're trying to come up with a solution, which means they're not in, a, in an Apple or Google app store, meaning he can't be shut off. So it's probably a website. And once he gets his megaphone reestablished, he only needs 30,000 supporters in the in the media and political establishment to be following it, don't forget. It's not really about him. Yes, of course, he had something like 80 million yeah. uh, followers by the end. But really what he did was, was to consume all the oxygen of publicity. And it was this way he could subvert the news and, and newspaper, hours, acres of news coverage on, on what he thought um, – because it's actually lazy journalism and easy journalism to base a whole article on, oh my God, he just said this. And of course, everyone fell for that trick. Uh, people who would like to think they were much smarter than that gave Trump incredible attention by by complaining about the content of his tweets. So Trump will find a new megaphone. And when he does, and when he's saying outrageous things, I guarantee you the media will go back to, oh my God, can you believe he just said X, Y, X, Y, Z? And, 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 the, and the cycle will repeat itself. Um, I, th- I understand that at the moment, his challenge, Trump's challenge, is to find a new platform that no one can de-platform him from. So that means avoiding most of Silicon Valley um, and coming up with a, an intermediate solution. Well, you know, it's interesting you bring that up, James, because a couple of weeks ago we had Nico Mele on and he basically said the new mainstream media is actually the Breitbart's the Tucker Carlson's the you know all these all these kind of alternative things and for us to kind of stay in the idea that CNN and the Times and the Post are are still still kind of it is kind of playing into Trump's game that's right and when you look at the view and numbers on all those you know they don't even i mean they scarcely tip above 1 million viewers at a time in a nation of 360 million people kind of make makes Frank Luntz's point about how specialized and and uh, and narrow these audiences actually are, 
And I question most of the time whether they're really converting voters. They're more just keeping them warm. They're, they're not challenging anyone's views particularly or introducing the counterpoint. It's like debates. You know, uh, everybody goes, oh, who's going to win the debate? The fact is, I mean, we all know this, the people watching the debate, I'm either cheering Joe Biden and there's a whole bunch yeah. of other people watching the debate cheering Donald Trump, right? And it doesn't, yeah. you know, there aren't really a whole lot of, unquote, undecided uh, people out there anyway, but even those people don't, are not, they're not the ones that are going to watch the debate. Fact is, um, coverage of the debate might might change something, but the actual, I mean, because if it goes at the moment, but um, so, uh, okay. So last uh, on this front. Could I interrupt you just a second, yes. Joe? I checked my calendar. I don't want to pay you a compliment on your own podcast. I looked at my calendar this morning. So three years ago, you and I sat in, in the Kramer bookstore in DC, and we were talking about the uh, forthcoming election in three years time, pre-COVID, pre-anything. And you called it for Biden. And you said, well, to, to paraphrase, this is me paraphrasing you. When there's a disturbance in the force, people go home to daddy. Was your yeah. phrase, <laughs> yeah. and you and you followed up with using Jerry Brown as an example of people going home to daddy. And I th I obviously said something like, "Oh, Joe, I don't know. You know, Biden's <laughs> kind of old. I don't. Re are they really going to pick a you know nearly eighty year old white man?" You said, "Listen, when the world goes crazy, people want stability and they go home to daddy." So you called that. You called the 2020 election in 2018. So I gave it to you. That was a Thanks. that was a bold, yeah. distant prediction. You were uh, absolutely correct. Uh, you know what though? I kept it the whole way. And I told Johnny wow. Avalon, all these people, yeah, I just kept it. And and you know, every time anybody would ask me, I mean, this is when he's lost Iowa, New you know, New Hampshire, like yeah. forget about it. It's gonna happen, you know, and, and I you know, people give Clyburn a lot of credit uh in South yep. Carolina. Uh, it well deserved. It was a courageous thing for him yes. to do. But I actually think Biden would have done well in in what, despite Clyburn's endorsement. Yeah, yeah, I mean it it helped. But I think he yeah. would have he was already he was already on fire in the community that needed him to be on fire, uh, and it was going to be tough um, for somebody to, to stop him for the reasons I said. I think people um, and and by the way, it wasn't some great vision. I had just happened to have lived through the 2010. Meg Whitman, Jerry Brown fight, where yep. it was just clear to me in that one that what what was helping Jerry uh, and us to win it uh, against somebody like Meg Whitman, you know, eBay CEO and founder, you know, it wasn't some crazy. I mean, she had, wasn't. Wasn't there some clever spot in that in that campaign, Joe, where somebody found some Schwarzenegger footage and put it next yes, to Whitman yeah, footage, saying the same thing? Yeah, but the, the but the point was we want you know that was a great spot and it was fun to make, but the reality is. People wanted, after Arnold Schwarzenegger, wanted um, to end the chaos and just have somebody who could turn Go the lights home to switch. Daddy. Yes. And, and, <laughs> and so then I started looking at, you know, okay, that was after eight years of Schwarzenegger. And I thought, well, well, Trump's gotten there in four years. He did it really <laughs> quick. Uh, maybe in the first 30 days he got there in terms of, the, you yeah. know, the kind of forces that would want uh, stability and civility. And, you know, that's who Joe Decency, civility, that's who he, he was. I thought for sure that's where the country would go. And I really did, too, uh, think that it would take the party of s several states possibly to get there, but that the party, mm -hmm. with all our wokeness and you know all the different yeah. factions, the party would get there as well. Uh, wow. And thank God they did, because I'm not sure anybody else. No no offense to the other very talented people, Kamala Harris and others. Yeah. Um 
But I'm not sure, given that Biden only won it by 44,000 votes in the three states that gave us the Electoral College, I'm not sure anybody else uh, that we would have nominated would have been able to pull that off, even with the the daddy thing going on. Again, you know, we're sitting here, accidental president, who, by the way, came within 44,000 votes in 2020 of doing it again with a party that is now seeking to further the use of raw power beyond those who are willing to use raw power in that 2020 election to overturn it um, and removing people who wouldn't comply with uh, overthrowing the will of the people. That is a a really scary thought um, as I see so many uh, uh, rank and file, you know, not just Democrats, but the people who just sort of are doing the sigh of relief and kind of avoiding the Trump thing when it's still there, he's still there. The party clearly has decided to double down and seeing if they could do it again, whether in 2022 or 2024 or both. And I suspect 2022 is the the first place that people would, it would be good to, to understand how this happened, why it happened and what we need and how vigilant we have to remain to make sure to the extent possible it doesn't happen again, not 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 in a way that, uh, you know, divides us further as a country. It, it, Joe, you know. Joe, where do you stand on the, do you think the 2020, the midterms have a bearing on whether or not Trump runs in 24? In other words, if he does, if the Republicans do well in 22 and he tries to take all the credit, which obviously he will, um, does that set him up for 24? Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. If that happens, I, I think the, 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 the key is their primaries where I suspect he's going to put up uh, and support several candidates. Uh, I'm sure McConnell and some of the, you know, uh, they'll go along on some, but they're going to try to put their own, you know, whatever you want to call it, uh, status quo Republicans opposing the Trump, uh, the Trumpists. And I think you're going to see a bunch of those primaries. And if Trump's people win the majority of them, which I think they will, and then are not, if they lose the general, if those 18 candidates lose the general election, that could put the, put the Trump fire out. I mean, in terms of his personal candidacy, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. if those people win, I mean, you know, if Mo Brooks, for instance, wins in Alabama, um, who who, who he's come out for. Uh, if if Holly candidates like that, that Trump will be behind uh, and support are winners. By the way, I mean, right now, the real danger here is that the we only hold the House by a few seats, uh, Democrats do. So, and Trump is taking, you know, is taking uh, sides in a lot of these races. Uh, I, I think that is risky for them because if they lose, although the one really weird thing is they're not, they're probably, he's going to probably crush these people in their primaries. I mean, I think, you know, uh, nine times out of 10, the candidate Trump, at least today, the candidate Trump supports in a Republican primary is going to win it. That's why none of them will oppose him, right? None of these senators right. will oppose him. So that's the real test for the, the democracy, I think, then is, and for the Democratic Party uh, writ large, if not the country. Uh, but I think the country too is we're in the general election of 2022. It's a midterm. Yeah. The president who won, you know, regardless of party, 
uh, in the presidential race before all, always loses seats in the House in the next election. The only president to avoid that was George W. Bush in after 9-11. He was elected in, in, in two, you know, 2000. 9-11 happens in 2001. 2002, he picks up two seats. So we're, we only have it by four or five seats uh, currently. And most analysts, independent analysts like the Cook Report say that with reapportionment, Republicans will uh, be able to draw lines that gain them 10 seats. So here you are, you know, you don't think you want to put Trump out of your memory. The real threat in 2022 is probably the House uh, because of what I just said. And you've got this party that uh, is flexing its muscle, uh, voting in states to suppress, you know, to, to do voter suppression and, and make, make it tougher to vote. And, and, does Joe, and, and does the Biden run again in, in 24? I think he has to maintain, no matter what, if he, he may have made an internal decision long before he ran this time about what he was going to do. But no matter what, I think he's got to maintain that he's he's going to, because I think that preserves his ability yes. to, 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 you know, the bully pulpit and he doesn't become a lame duck. But, you know, we'll see. I think the first two years of his term are going to be everything. Either we come out of COVID, uh, people, the vaccinations work, the economy really starts to move. 2022 turns out to be another year where a, a president who just won actually picks up seats when it's only happened once uh, in modern history. And that then the I mean, I, I think the bigger part here is can the Democratic Party writ large with the White House, with the Senate, only if only with a tie breaking vote with Kamala Harris and with the House show the American people what effective uh, know how to get it done government is capable of, particularly after Trump government sucks. We got to dismantle it incompetence, corruption, et cetera. So if that's the compare, now, if we fail, I mean, if something doesn't go right, uh, interest rates start to go out, you know, sky high. Uh, I'm confident given the, 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 the job Biden's doing and the discipline um, that, that we're seeing within the party in the House and the Senate, even though there are people who want more of this or, you know, or we should be doing it differently, coming together and holding that, you know, holding the, the, the majority votes that are going to get us, you know, got us the COVID stimulus uh, relief package, uh, I think get us will get us the infrastructure package that will create a lot of jobs and get the economy uh, moving even beyond where it's already growing. Um, so, no, I, I actually am pretty optimistic, but I think as activists or as just, you know, uh, Americans who want to see um, a country that's coming together and not being torn apart, the year we have to be, it's not wait till 2024 and see if Trump goes again. It's it's 2022. Oh, of course, yeah, of course. And making yeah, absolutely yeah, yeah. sure um, that we've done everything we've, we we can. So, Fletch, I, I got to ask you, and I, I think this, is, this comes off nicely after what Joe just brought up. There was an article, I think it was in Politico this week, that they quoted a, a Republican staffer saying how hard it is to run against Joe Biden just because of how how well he's done in kind of framing everything. I think the quote something like, 
Everything they support is either COVID relief or infrastructure, and everything they oppose is like evil Jim Crow voter suppression. So going back to the film, obviously they did so much tactically on the Republican side, on the Trump campaign side that you, you got into, especially with Kellyanne. Do you see a tactical window against Biden this time, or is it going to just be a lot harder? I mean, I don't really credit Trump massively with tactics. I think he's very hit and run. And and funnily enough, going back to the focus group conversation, I always said that his rallies were basically live focus groups. So he had 20,000, 30,000 people in an arena and he'd drop his insults or whatever challenges he had that day. And just as a stand-up comedian sees how jokes are responded to by an audience, Trump would do the same with his with his chat of the day, which he would then repeat on Twitter if he got a laugh in the in the live audience. I think the whole thing about the Trump campaign is it was so unstrategic, unstrategic in in the way Joe or I would ever have worked on a campaign. I think it was shooting from the hip, seeing what landed, and I think. Honestly, most of the time, Trump was as, as amazed as anyone that certain points or insults resonated with his base. Thanks, Fletch, for coming on today. And thanks for listening to That Trippy Show. Make sure to watch The Accidental President. It's on Apple iTunes, uh, maybe the best place to get it, but it's also on Prime Video. We'll put the links in the show notes. And I really can't recommend this enough. Uh, it's well worth your time and understanding how it happened, what we missed, and what we still need to be thinking about as we enter the the 2022 midterm. Don't want to let you go without some big news. Operation 147 is launching our first TV ad. Should be uh, airing Monday uh, in Texas 6th District, where Democrat Janelyn Sanchez has a real shot to take back the first district held that was held by a member of the 147 insurrectionists um, who voted to overthrow the election. Polling has the race really close, and it'll probably go to a runoff, but Jana's in great shape. If you want a sneak preview of the ad, go to operation147.com and sign up to be the first to know. We'll be back next Friday at our usual time. And as usual, if you have a race you want us to spotlight or a question, please submit it on iTunes in the review section, or email us at thattrippyshow at gmail.com. And if you like the episode, please share it with three friends. God, Alex, did you add that note? <laughs> Maybe four friends. Uh, it really yeah, helps. Let's, let's go yeah, for this It really week. helps us grow. Again, uh, James Fletcher, the accidental president, on Prime Video. Watch it, and we'll see you next Friday. <laughs>